Ladies and gentlemen, friends, allow me a quick word on what you are going to hear now. I shall read the first three pages or so from a novella entitled Crusade. Set in the Middle Ages, it deals with a force which is not necessarily medieval. It's a story about fanaticism. I have to confess personally that I grew up among fanatics. I might have been one myself when I was a kid. I hope I had recovered. And I've always been intrigued by fanatics. I dare say that by now, I might have even become a bit of an authority on the subject of comparative fanaticism. I wish to read to you the first two paragraphs in the Hebrew original first. now, before I switch into English, one very quick remark on the agonies of translating Hebrew into any European language. You may have noticed that the very first sentence in Hebrew consists of three words. The same sentence in English reads, it all began with outbreaks of discontent in the villages. <laughs> ten, ten long words for three short ones. And it's not a deficiency of a translator. I am responsible for this translation along with Nicolas Delange who did it. So you see, having to read it to you in English translation feels rather like making love through a blanket. <laughs> but for despair, I would do even that. Crusade. It all began with outbreaks of discontent in the villages. Day by day, bad omens began to appear in the poorer areas. An old farmer of Galan saw the form of a fiery chariot in the sky. In Saro, an ignorant old woman crowed out oracles, coached in the purest Latin. Rumors went around of a cross in an out-of-the-way church which burned for three days with a green flame and was not consumed. Our Lady appeared to a blind peasant beside a fountain one night, and when the priests fed him wine, he described the vision in scriptural language. 
The faithful seemed to detect a kind of malicious joy fermenting throughout the winter in the dwellings of the accursed Jews. Strange things happened. Bands of dark wanderers, huge and black as bears, appeared simultaneously in several places. Even educated folk could sense at times a murmur gnawing inside them. There was no peace to be had. In Clermont, in the year of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1095, Pope Urban II summoned the flocks of God to an expedition to liberate the Holy Land from the hands of the infidel and to expi expiate their sins through the hardships of the journey for spiritual joy is achieved through suffering. Early in the autumn of the following year, four days after the end of the vintage, the noble count Guillaume of Toron set out at the head of a small troop of peasants, serfs, and outlaws from his estate near Avignon and headed toward the Holy Land to take part in its deliverance and so to find peace of mind. Besides the blight which had afflicted the vines and the shriveling of the grapes, and besides gigantic deaths, there were other more immediate reasons which moved the noble count to set out on his journey. We are informed of these in the chronicle of an extraordinary young man who himself took part in the expedition, Claude, nicknamed Crookback. He was a distant relative of the count and had grown up on his estate. This Claude was perhaps the adoptive heir of the childless count perhaps a mere hanger-on. He was literate and almost cultivated, though prone to, prone to violently, violently alternating fits of depression and enthusiasm. He would give himself over by turns, restlessly and without any real satisfaction, to ascetic practices and to the delights of the flesh. He was a great believer in the power of the supernatural. He kept company with half-wits, fancying he found in them a holy spark. And much-thumbed books and peasants women, peasant women alike fired him with a wild desire. His excesses of religious fervor and gloomy melancholy inspired feelings of contempt and loathing in others and consumed the very flesh from off his bones, kindling an evil flame in his eye. As for the Count, he treated Claude Crookbeck with sullen toleration and ill-suppressed rudeness. Some uncertainty, in fact, prevailed at court about the status and privileges of this young but silver-haired fellow who had, apart from everything else, a violent and ridiculous love of cats and who was a passionate collector of women's jewelry. Claude mentions in his chronicle, among the factors which promoted the Count to, send, to set on his journey, certain events which occurred in swift succession in the course of the preceding year. At the beginning of the spring, he writes, in the year of our Lord's incarnation, 1096, the sin of arrogance raised its head among the peasantry. 
There occurred on our estate several cases of insolence and insubordination, such as the destruction of part of the meager crop, motivated by anger at its, at its very meagerness. Daggers were stolen, the river flooded, barns were fired, falling stars were seen, sorcery was practiced, and mischievous pranks were played. All this within the confines of our domain, apart from numerous crimes in the neighboring districts and even across the river. Indeed, it was, find it was found necessary to oil the torture wheel once again and to put to the test several rebellious serfs so as to quell the rising fervor of violence, for suffering begets love. On our estate, seven peasants and four witches were put to death. In the course of their torture, their crimes came to light, and light purges all sin. In addition, during the spring, our young mistress, Louise of Beaumont, showed the first signs of the falling sickness, the very disease which had carried off her predecessor two years earlier. On Easter day, the Count carried his drinking beyond all reasonable limits. And on this occasion, he did not succeed in soaring above the state of tipsy rage to the heights of drunken joy. There occurred episodes, continues the chronicler, in a rather veiled tune, such as what happened that night when the Count smashed six valuable drinking vessels, family heirlooms. He hurled these gorgeous objects at the serving men in reprisal for some fault whose nature was not clear. Injuries were done, blood was spilt. The Count made reparation for his error with constant, constant silent prayers and fasting. But the fragments of the shattered goblets could not be pieced together. I have them all in my keeping still. What is done is done and there is no going, no going back. Claude also writes as follows. In the early days of the summer, in the course of the barley harvest, the Jewish agent fell under suspicion. He was put to death in consequence of his fervent protestations of innocence. The spectacle of the burning of the Jew might have served to dispel somewhat the anxiety and depression which had caught hold of us since the spring. But it so happened that the Jew, as he was being burned, succeeded in upsetting everything by pronouncing a violent Jewish curse on Count Guillaume from the pyre. This terrible event occurred in the presence of the whole household, from the ailing lady down to the most ignorant servant girls. Obviously, it was impossible to punish the wretch for his curses. It is in the nature of these Jews to burn only once. Thank you very much.